I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. You know how I sometimes contribute to BBC Radio Scotland and chat about dogs, particularly with the seasoned broadcaster Stephen Jardine? Well, today, Stephen's joining us on A Dog's Life to talk about his Norfolk Terrier puppy called Frankie. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me on A Dog's Life. Hi, Anna. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we've we've known each other now for a few years because you are not only a seasoned broadcaster, but a huge terrier lover <laughs> and you are a foodie extraordinaire. I am. Yeah, we we're now on to our second dog. We had a, a Kian Terrier called Billy who was with us for 12 years. And sadly, we lost him two years ago, which uh, any of your listeners will know is just the worst thing that can happen to you. And I wasn't sure we were going to do this again, Anna, to be honest, because it was such a huge loss and it took us ages to get over Billy. And I don't know if we would have if lockdown hadn't come along, but my son and his girlfriend moved back from London and came into the house with us and they were here for a year. And we did a lot of walking around Edinburgh. It's a brilliant city uh, to, to walk. And I saw so many dogs out and about, and I really just started to miss having a dog in our life. And so did my wife, and so did our son. So we took the decision and we took the plunge. We knew we wanted another terrier, and we've got friends who've got two Norfolk terriers, and we liked them. We liked how they were, we liked their personalities. So then I started the <laughs> process of trying to find a Norfolk terrier in the UK, and boy, that was hard. I think it, probably easier to adopt than it is to get a Norfolk <laughs> Terrier at the moment. Well, I can believe it because in lockdown, obviously, demand for puppies soared. We saw an unprecedented even rise in this puppy love that had good and bad attached to it through lockdown. It's been mad. But I should imagine, especially with a Norfolk, because a Norfolk is one of the 32, I think it is now, vulnerable British breeds. So even, you know, there aren't many Norfolk Terriers around, Stephen. We had to jump through hoops, and I mean, first of all, I, I wrote to everyone, emailed everyone on the Norfolk Terrier breeders list, and uh, two came back to me, one basically saying, never bother me again, and <laughs> the other saying, nothing at the moment, but I'll add you to my long list. And then they came back to me and said, we don't have one, but we know someone who has, um, which led us to this wonderful woman called Mary, who any Norfolk Terrier owners will know in Yorkshire. She's the kind of doyen of the breed. And she'd had uh, the last litter that she was going to have at the age of, I think, Mary, maybe 92. Gosh. Now, this was the last time she was going to breed with her dogs. So uh, we were lucky enough to get one of them, Frankie, who joined us at the start of this year. I, I've got to say, Anna, I kind of slightly, when I walk in the park with him, because he's obviously still a puppy, and when other people kind of give you that, oh, you've got a lockdown puppy, look, I feel a bit bad about that because we've been down the dog road before. We didn't get him because of lockdown. We got him because we love dogs. And I think there is a bit of judging going on at the moment about people who got their dogs during lockdown. What do you think? 
Oh, it's funny, actually, because yesterday I was walking back from the hairdressers and I saw a lovely couple and this um, young, groovy, hackney hipster who had a poodle mix, young puppy, and the others had a, a miniature long-haired dachshound, young dog. And I, I just overheard them say, no, he's a year already. Yes, we've had him a whole year. And obviously this poodle mix was a lot younger than a year. And I just kind of... I don't know, sighed a bit in a way. And I thought, gosh, this is the new generation of dog owners. And I think, yes, a lot of people got so much bad press for taking on a puppy in lockdown, perhaps not for their own fault. I just think so many people didn't think it through or simply didn't realize, Stephen, you know, what a commitment a dog is. Uh, many of these puppies will be fine and will have found their forever homes, but many won't. And the worst bit, Stephen, is that they're being resold online rather than being handed in to a reputable rescue where, you know, they'll, they'll be looked after and they'll find a, an appropriate home. They're just being sold like a hoover, you know, on uh, internet sites. Yeah, this is what I feel, Anna. You know, people see them just as being commodities. They just see it as being another fashion. It's like a very expensive handbag or, you know, a very expensive uh, rucksack that you've decided to buy if you're an outdoors type person rather than a sentient being with feelings and emotions. And, you know, now as they start to be left at home, as people are returning to work, and as we start to move into autumn and the weather changes, I'm really concerned about what is going on out there with, with dogs. And people need to continue the love. You have, they've made a commitment to you and you've made a commitment to them and you need to see this through. Well, absolutely. But I think people underestimate the commitment. I think, you know, we're living in a world that's been driven by convenience now for so long. And in a way through lockdown, you know, we couldn't go to the shops. It was all very difficult. So we reverted to the internet, which is why, of course, unscrupulous breeders at that time maximised this opportunity, you know, and people were buying puppies on the internet. I mean, the thing is this, you just never buy a dog on the internet. But it seems we're now doing this. I mean, I've, I've lived with dogs all my life, Stephen. I, I was blessed. My dad, he he was a retired army officer and he, he worked with the RSPCA in Shropshire. He was the secretary of the Shropshire branch when I was really, really young. So, you know, I, I grew up learning about some awful animal cruelty, which I think is where it all started. And my dad taught me everything really I, I know about dogs. And, um, you know, it made me really think twice about the human condition. And, and in a way, what we're doing now without seeing things through. In the olden days, you could never even rehome a dog if you didn't have a garden. And I understand that lots of dogs can live fine without a garden, you know, in, in, in London, for example, but it takes an awful lot more work. Having a garden makes owning a dog really much easier. <laughs> you, you, you know, and if you have a child, you, you have made a commitment to that child and to society. And it isn't easy. Being a parent isn't easy. And it's demanding and it's expensive and it's tough. But when you go on that journey, you have to see it through. And I think it's exactly the same with dogs. You've made that commitment to them and they give their heart and their soul to you. So you owe it to them. You know, it's not just another device. It's not just another lifestyle choice that you've made. And, you know, people who get into that situation have not thought things through and they need to get out of it in the right way using the animal charities and the support that is there, not going to Gumtree and not going online. 
No, I couldn't agree more. But, you know, I think, you know, when when people look at you in the park, Stephen, I would just not worry about what they might be thinking. You know, nothing can break the bond now, Stephen, between you and Frankie. And, and I'm so excited to hear about your onward journey because I read about when you'd lost Billy and I, I think I messaged you actually. And um, as I am honoured on occasion, Stephen, to join you on BBC Radio Scotland um, and give the odd bit of advice about dogs and stuff but I read about Billy and it, and it yeah I I felt for you so much because the pain is just unbearable and so hard to quantify. I, I remember what you said you were so helpful at the time Anna because um, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do you know I mean I've been a journalist for over 30 years and I've reported uh, you know from around the world and I've seen some horrible things and I had to kind of process that but there was something about sitting outside the vets on that day when we knew Billy had cancer and we knew that he'd reached the end and we'd reached that awful stage where you have to make the decision that the best thing for your dog, if you really love them, you have to let them go. And uh, Sheila went in to make, uh, my wife went in to do the paperwork and I sat outside with him on a bench and then she came to the door uh, with tears in her eyes and I knew if I walked in the door, he wasn't coming out, but I had to do it with him. I had to, I had to walk in with him. And that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And it's what makes it so hard to go back and have another dog, because you know that you have to do that again, probably at some point. But yes. what we have in between is the best possible lives and the best fun and the best love. Exactly. You'll never replace the dog. I mean, when Molly, my first bull terrier passed, I admit, you know, I derailed. But a life without a dog, I think, is no life at all. And somebody said to me once, Anna, the first heartbreak shatters your heart. Referring to, you know, the passing of a mm. dog. All the other dogs you then own and bring into your life bit by bit, put the pieces of that shattering together again so that one day you die with the heart of a dog. Oh. I know, gosh. <laughs> but you've celebrated this. You've dived in with Frankie. And, I, you know, Norfolk Terriers, I... They're charming little, little people, aren't they? Um, uh, the editor of your dog magazine is a Norfolk Terrier fan, incidentally, as well. Oh, you, you, do you know, they've got such huge personalities. Compared to Kieran Terrier, he is completely different. Uh, you know, he's got completely different. He's not bothered by squirrels in the garden, not that interested in birds, obsessed with flies in the house. It's his absolute mission is to hunt down flies. You know, he's got a much smaller sense of scale than Billy, Billy used to have. Well, they're low to the ground, aren't they, the Norfolk? Yeah, they, they are low. And we've got a big glass window and he just spends his days trying to catch flies. But he's just interested in different things. He's got a completely different personality. Uh, he's very clumsy, which I totally love because I'm clumsy. And, and Billy was really sure-footed. You know, he would jump up on all kinds of things, walk ledges. He was really, really smart on his feet. Whereas Frankie blunders into things. He's always tripping. He's always falling over things. And I love that. Oh, that's brilliant. And you took him staycationing. 
as a young puppy. Now, tell us a bit more about that. Some of the ups and downs of going on a road trip with Frankie the Norfolk. (laughs) Right. So what happened was, Anna, we got him from the the Norfolk actually came from Yorkshire. So we went and picked him up at the end of um, lockdown and brought him up to Scotland. And we had a terrible journey from North Yorkshire to Scotland. He was sick just constantly the whole way, poor little soul. I mean, they were windy, twisty roads. He'd not really been in a car very much before he came to us, and he had the most terrible journey. So uh, fast forward uh, six months to we are facing a journey from Edinburgh, yep, all the way down to Cornwall. We really couldn't have chosen to go further. So we broke the journey halfway down. Um, I decided we would stop just outside Gloucester because it was also the night Scotland were playing England in the Euros. And I didn't want to miss that game. So uh, we went to the vet beforehand and said, can you give us something for car sickness for Frankie? So she gave us some, um, some pills, which we tried on him, but he didn't like those. Those didn't agree with him. So we ended up uh, on the day just doing the journey as it came. So we kept on stopping at every motorway service station. He was shaking. He sat on my lap. He sat on Sheila's lap. And then eventually we discovered that putting on the radio seemed to calm him down. We both love radio, Anna, you and me. And thank goodness, so does Frankie, because (laughs) that got us down to Gloucester. And then after that, he was actually fine all the way down there. And Cornwall was an absolute joy. I mean, they're pretty well organized down there. People at holiday there will know the beaches. A lot of the beaches are dog-free during the day. So you've got to get up early to get your dog onto the beach. But then that's the best time of the day. We know that as dog walkers, don't we? To get out nice and early or when sun sets. And it's okay to take the dogs on the beach then. Yeah, how amazing. Gosh, you know, I'd love that. There is something dogs adore about beaches. You know, I think it's that sense, Stephen, of the horizon and they have total freedom. And then you're really connected with your dog in nature. And it kind of just epitomizes, to me anyway, the whole point of having a dog, which is walking your dog. (laughs) Uh, I, I loved Anna because it was his first time on a beach was down in Cornwall. So he didn't, so the jellyfish, he didn't know. He didn't know Mm. about them. He didn't know if they were good or bad. So he kept looking to us to know how to behave with things. And obviously it was his first time with the waves. So he, you know, he watched those golden retrievers and those Labradors bounding out into the waves and had a little go himself and then discovered as a long-haired terrier, that wasn't a good idea. So he stayed out of the sea for the rest of the holiday, but he absolutely loved the beach. I think it's the freedom. It's that sense of just run and run and run. Um, It's lots of other dogs round about as well. And the smells, these different smells of the sea, which even we as humans can appreciate when you think for a dog, how how the beach must smell, the seaweed and the the ozone from the the sea it must be amazing for them absolutely no that's it I mean tapping into your dog's sense of smell you know just as a a normal dog owner you know getting them to find things because he's a terrier hiding a ball under a bush and then encouraging Frankie to go find that ball and tap into his sense of smell and his natural instinct as a hardy little terrier his legs might be short Stephen but they're strong and they were they've been bred to dig and dig and dig and dig and reveal rodents and so if you capture the essence of your dog's personality as a Norfolk as opposed to a Labrador you know it's a great way of bonding and and once you've got that bond that's unbreakable. 
Absolutely. And, and the highlight for us was we, we went into Truro for a day and we were walking up the, the main street in Truro and a woman dashed out of one of the shops in, in the high street and said, is that a Norfolk Terrier? Yeah, yeah, it is. His name's Frankie. Um, I've never seen one. We've got one at home who's six months old and we've never met another, another Norfolk. So we had a good chat about it because Frankie was exactly six months as well. And then off we went. We went and had some lunch in Truro. Walking back to the car, Anna, I saw this guy bounding up the high street with a Norfolk Terrier. So she texted her boyfriend and said, get yourself into town. There's another Norfolk in town. So that was Amazing. Maggie. Right. So they met in Truro High Street. Maggie met uh, Frankie, both six months old. Oh. And it was love at first sight, Anna. <laughs> This is brilliant. But, you know, you can't make this up. This is how strong, you know, the, the relationship with your dog is to call your partner to come rushing to meet the only other Norfolk in Cornwall. I think it's absolutely brilliant. So have you exchanged numbers? <laughs> absolutely, we have. Yeah, because they, there was something strange that was going on. That he, he knew this was a Norfolk. He definitely knew this was different from other dogs. So we, we talked for about an hour and they were just rolling about and we've exchanged numbers. So we usually go back to Cornwall every year. So we might pop in and see Maggie next year and see how things are going. Yeah. And I mean, that just shows, you know, how dogs open up our world, you know, to meeting new people and new shared experiences. Because I always like to say, Stephen, you know, I think dogs are a social network without... <sighs> technology <laughs> that's brilliant and one of the big things I'd missed was just I'm just back from the dog walk this morning and the, the people you speak to who you would never ever speak to of all ages all backgrounds because of the common bond that you have with dogs when we were in St Ives I, I was walking down the main street in St Ives and this family, uh, I, I heard them shout Norfolk before I saw them. <laughs> and it was a mum and dad and two teenagers. And again, they came racing down and they just lost their Norfolk um, after 14 years. And the mum was in tears seeing another Norfolk. And the, both the teenagers wanted selfies with the dog. And it's just a lovely thing that goes on between people who, who have dogs. And I'm like you. I mean, I think there's something very special about the bond between owners and dogs, but also between dog owners. And when I speak to somebody on the radio or in real life and they say, I don't like dogs, there's something switches off in me. Oh, gosh, yes, I know. I, I'd go further. I'd say, you know, really? If, 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 <laughs> what's wrong with you? I mean, I can't trust somebody who doesn't like dogs because for me, I just say, well, what is there not to like? You know, and I think you have to have barometers in life, don't you? You know, um, well, you might not like German Shepherds, but you probably w will like a West Highland Terrier. You might not like, you know, you, how can you? It's like saying, I don't like food. Or well, yes. I don't like countries. There's or I don't like everyone. cheese, you know. Mm. There's a cheese for everyone, I think. Cheese and dogs, what a combination. Gosh, brilliant. Yeah, I know. Because you do write, you're a food journalist as well, aren't you, Steve? Yeah, I write a food column in the um, in the Scotsman newspaper. And I think, you know, we've done a few items on the radio about feeding your dogs. And I think it's really interesting, the different approaches that people have to that. And I, I've got to confess, with our last dog, we anything went you know we didn't it was the first time we'd had a dog so we weren't very disciplined about feeding times and also about what he got and we're trying to be much 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 better with Frankie and just be 
quite regimented about things. But I've, I've got to admit, my wife's away at the moment. And last night, I think he was missing her. Anna, and he didn't eat his supper last night. So oh. I just grated a little bit of cheddar over the top of his, his uh, dinner. And it was gone. In a moment. Well, so. Yes. You see, well, the thing is cheese. Some people think, oh, cheese and dairy is not good for dogs. But no, no, au contraire. And cheese is animal fat and animal protein. Mm. And it's a very rich source of nutrition for dogs. And, of course, training dogs, I always recommend a little bit, only a little bit, little, little pieces of mild cheddar goes a long way to keep that motivation and your dog's focus when you're training a new command, for example, a new cue. So, yes, a little bit and of cheese. I'm going to try that because I'm in the midst of training with Frankie at the moment. And, you know, it's going OK with the dried treats, but there's a few things that I'm finding hard to crack. So I'm going to try that tip from you, just a little bit of cheese, a little sliver and see if I can get him to cross the line. I'm sure he will. Another good one, of course, is a little bit of ham or a little bit of sausage. Tap into the inner carnivore, Steve. <laughs> but another thing is cultural differences, isn't it, really, with dogs? Because the UK's come on leaps and bounds, but only really recently, because when I had Molly, my first miniature bull terrier, that was 2002. At this point, there were no pubs that were dog friendly. You found one that was, and oh boy, you were loyal to that establishment. I went, cafes you couldn't take your dog really anywhere in 2002 and now it's the opposite <laughs> it's hard to find a place that won't allow dogs you know which is I think on the one hand canny entrepreneurs tapping into this booming economy called the hound pound but you spent a lot of time in Paris which I also have done way back when dogs were literally everywhere Oh, do you know, it was uh, it was an education. I lived in Paris for, and worked there for two years. And, and we the area that we were in especially was just, we were next to a park and uh, everyone seemed to have a dog. No one seemed to pick up, which was, <laughs> I think they were just too, too proud and Parisian to actually pick up. Um, so you had to watch, especially we had our son when we were living over there. You had to be really careful when you're out and about. Our local restaurant, the Bistro Duty Setiem, Every second table, there was a dog sitting on someone's lap, either eating directly from their plate or being fed <laughs> little morsels from the plate. And, you know, for someone with Scottish sensibilities moving over there, I, I was horrified by it because that wasn't the place that I thought dogs had in people's lives. But it was done out of love. And Parisians, they had a very, you know, and the dogs were all very well-dressed little bows in their hair, little jackets in the wintertime, padded jackets and, and that kind of thing. And all small dogs. You know, here in cities, you will see a lot of big dogs nowadays. And there's an interesting conversation about that, whether that is an appropriate thing to do if you live in a flat, for instance. But everybody in the centre of Paris is living in apartments and they are all going for these small dogs to fit their lifestyle, to fit yeah. into, literally into handbags, Anna. Yeah, and this was way before um, this. I mean, I was in Paris, gosh, date myself now, um, 1990 to 92, fine years. <laughs> and it was wonderful for me to see the dogs everywhere because obviously I'd grown up with dogs and what with my dad and so on and so forth. It was absolutely brilliant. Yes, I agree with the poo. You see, I was in the Catrium, Steve. So I was quite close to Notre Dame and you would have been near the Bois de Boulogne. That's right. Yeah, I, I was. and uh, But nobody seemed to, to walk their dogs actually in the park for some reason. 
They'd far <laughs> rather just walk around the pavements, stare in the window of the shops and let the dogs poo and then just walk on. That was my thought. Just go into the park. Just go into the... There's a forest, basically, on your <laughs> yes. doorstep, but you won't do that. No, no, no. Now, I know that, oh, Paris, it was just so quirky and absolutely brilliant. But interestingly, in 2002, I was going to Paris quite a bit. And that's where I bought Molly, my first bull terrier, all her collars. I bought gorgeous blankets. I, I they have because the best dog stuff over the there. The best dog stuff, because it was there then, but it hadn't hit the UK. So we still had sawdust on the floor, you know, in pet shops and goldfish looking a bit peaky in the corners, you know, and, and, and there'd be this dreadful smell about these pet shops. It took a few more years for, you know, the boutique to hit the UK. But Paris was was there first, without a doubt. But, you know, Edinburgh as well, you have the legendary mm, Greyfriars Bobby, mm-hmm. don't you? The yep. legend terrier that if nothing else, you know, Greyfriars Bobby, I've, I've seen, I've been to his little statue. It was too small. It's too small, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, the scale was all wrong. And also, I tell you what, Anna, I don't know if this was happening when you were here, but it's become a thing now that people rub Greyfriars Bobby's nose Oh. So all the tourists, so his nose is basically non-existent now. It's just been rubbed off by people walking up and, and rubbing the nose. And that didn't happen until a couple of years ago. Somebody will have started that on Instagram and it's now become a thing. They should oh. just stop. Oh, gosh, that's that's upset me a bit, actually. You know, I find that a bit disrespectful in a way. We'll need a new Bobby soon. Yes, a new Bobby. <laughs> I mean, do you think the whole story was true, Stephen, about the Sky Terrier that visited his master's grave day in, day out, until he took his final breath? Well, do you know, until I became the, the owner of a terrier, I would not have believed it, Anna. But when, when I see the loyalty that I get from our dog and we got from our last terrier as well, I can absolutely believe it. You know, as I say, my wife's away at the moment. Frankie is, I put him downstairs actually while we're doing this just because uh, I thought he might be barking at the, um, we've got seagulls nesting on the roof at the moment. So upstairs here, he barks when he comes upstairs sometimes. Um, But he is at my feet all the time at the moment because my wife is away. And when she comes back, he will not move from her side. I believe the story. It's a great, it's a lovely, lovely story. And I absolutely believe the story. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Oh, gosh. Well, Stephen, you know, thank you for sharing your nuggets of dogdom today. Been an absolute pleasure. And, oh, I really hope to get to meet Frankie. I think he's a great addition into your your life at the moment. You know, any tips you might need on training or anything else, please send me an email. I'd love Anna, to help. I, I so appreciate it. I, I'm so happy to be back uh, in the world of dogs and dog owners as well, because uh, it's, uh, you know, you, you were saying life's not complete without a dog. And I really believe a home isn't complete without a dog. It, there's just a piece of the jigsaw missing. And it's great to have that piece back in our lives. Yes, fantastic. Well, Stephen, I'd love a catch up. Maybe let's have another chat in a few months and find out how Frankie's learned to run an agility course. How's that I'd for lo- a challenge? I'd, <laughs> I'd love to do that, Anna. Yeah, why don't we come back once he's had his first birthday and we'll see how we're getting on then. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Anna. Hey, Mr. Binks, that's our show. What did you think? 
Yes, it's brilliant to hear all about Frankie and just how happy he's making Stephen and his whole family. The Norfolk Terrier is quite a personality. What's that? Yes, you're right. It is time for Woof of the Week. There's no doubt that losing a dog does break your heart. But it's equally true that another dog will help put it back together. Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, of course, to Stephen Jardine for joining us today. And all the links to find him will be in the show notes. Thank you, my patient producer, Mike Hansen. Find out more about him at Pod People UK. And for more about me, I'm at Anna Webb Dogs. What's that, Binks? Oh, yes, we will be back in your feed next Sunday. So why don't you subscribe now? It's free. And then you'll never miss another show. Bye for now. Bye for now.